welcome to the family. We praise the Lord for that. Uh, how are you today? Oh, good. Yeah. We have been very blessed by God. Um, we have gone through, as a church, gone through these past two weeks where a lot of us uh, contracted this virus, but we praise the Lord for His grace and mercy because we have survived this. When you have heard, when you hear the word Pharisee, what comes to mind? Well, perhaps when you heard sermons before or you have read in the Bible, excuse me, when the word Pharisee comes up, um, you get a discreet, uh, this word that is not a, a very pleasant word. In fact, this word is very notorious for the reputation of being legalistic but as well as blameless. Yeah, you heard me, right? I said blameless. When you heard of the word Pharisee, what should come to mind is not just their legalism, but also them being blameless. Let me take you a picture here. Philippians chapter 3, verses uh, 4 through 6. Can you hear me? All right. So the, here it goes. Philippians 3, 4 through 6. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh. This is Paul speaking, by the way. He said, I have more. He was, he was uh, circumcised on the eighth day. Now, anyone here has been circumcised on the eighth day? No one. Only Apostle Paul. So he's talking about confidence in the flesh. He was circumcised on the eighth day. And for every Jew who was who was instructed to be circumcised on the eighth day to belong to a covenant, this means him being a Jew, he belonged to this covenant. Other than that, he said, people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, he was born as an Israelite. His blood, he was born in, in Israel. And not just being an Israelite, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Jacob had two wa uh, four wives. He's got two legitimate wives and two concubines. And Rachel was the one that he really loved in the first place. Benjamin was one of his sons. See, Jacob and Rachel produced Joseph and Benjamin. And Paul is saying, I am of the purest stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin. So he said, Hebrew of Hebrews. But as to the law, he's a Pharisee. What he's saying here is in the context of the law and righteousness, he is a Pharisee. What is a Pharisee? He said, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. That means he is so zealous, he is so passionate, believe, to the point that he will kill people who disagree with his religious beliefs. And then he said this, as to righteousness, as to righteousness under the law, he's blameless. You see this? Now, this is not the first time that this has been said about the Pharisee. Uh, if you read the, the Gospels, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you read about a Pharisee, a Pharisee is always painted in a bad picture, in a bad light. He's a, he's a hypocrite. Uh, he's, a, he's legalistic and so other, and many other things. But in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is saying that first and foremost, a Pharisee is righteous and blameless. Now, if that's the idea, today I will teach you one thing. Blameless, being blameless like a Pharisee, doesn't get you right with God. 
I'll, I'll say that again. Being blameless like a Pharisee doesn't get you right with God. So if being blameless like a Pharisee doesn't get you right with God, then who will be right with God? That's the question. Who is right with God now? Now to answer that question, you will have to listen to a story from Joshua chapter 2. Because the whole chapter 2 of Joshua will explain to us the idea of what is being blameless. And if being blameless doesn't get you right with God, then who will? Now, Joshua, as we know, replaced Moses. And they were about to cross the Jordan River. They were about to enter the promised land and get this promised land long promised to them uh, for about 40 years. At this point, though, Joshua doesn't know what to do or how to go about entering the land. He doesn't know any military strategy yet. He, it has not been revealed to him yet. So just like any military leader, and just like Moses, he sent spies in the land. Now remember, 38 years ago, 38 years before this one, Moses sent 12 spies in the land of Canaan. And that, <laughs> and that made them stay for 38 more years in the wilderness because it backfired. The 10 spies, the 12, rebelled against Moses and the Lord and so God cursed them, and all that generation died in the wilderness. Joshua learned from that lesson. He will never repeat that lesson. So from then on, he secretly sent only two men, spies, to enter the land. Because it's easier to manage, probably. The Bible did not really explain why two. Um, out of the 12 that Moses sent, only two did not rebel, with Joshua and Caleb. So Joshua learned from this from this lesson, he only sent two spies. Let me read to you chapter 2, 1 through 7. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to enter your house, um, sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they are, uh, where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid under in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. This is an amazing story. What this story tells us is that Rahab, who was the prostitute, uh, help the spies and hid the spies so that they will not be caught. The spies were rescued by the most unlikely character, Rahab, the prostitute. Every time you hear and read the word Rahab, it's always followed by this word, her profession, she was a prostitute. I'm thinking it's sometimes hard to imagine how the kingdom of God is full of people from diverse and colorful backgrounds. Take, for example, the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ. Four of them, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, were all fishermen, blue-collar jobs, ordinary people like us. One of his disciples was Matthew. He was a tax collector. According to their understanding of righteousness, a tax collector is an outcast, unclean, and corrupt. 
uh, another disciple of Jesus was Judas, a thief, and he died a thief. He betrayed Jesus at the very end. Now, there are other disciples of Jesus, but their professions were not mentioned. No lawyers, no doctors, no highly educated person were disciples of Jesus Christ among the 12. Why is that? It's a very interesting selection. See, the kingdom of God is full of people who were not that special. Why? God would say. Now, of all people who the spies will work with in Jericho, the spies work with a prostitute by the name of Rahab. Now, the question is, why her? If there's anything, she understood perfectly two things. Number one, she understood who Yahweh is and why Yahweh, the Israelite God, is allowing the Israelites to take over the place. She understood this. And I would say, uh, uh, and I would say that the general population of the people of Jericho understood why, who Yahweh is and why he is allowing the Israelites to take over the place. Let me continue reading from verse 9. This is what she said. I know that the Lord had given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Ah, they're very afraid of the Israelites. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. I cannot think of anything, of any picture but butter. When you put the butter in the pan and it's heated, it melts away. It's just like this one. That's what she's saying. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heavens above and the earth beneath. Two things here. Rahab understood who Yahweh is. And what does this mean? See, by referencing Yahweh as the God of heavens and earth, she is trying to give us a landscape of how to compare Yahweh in comparison to the gods of Canaan or the gods in the promised land. One of the most famous gods in the promised land or Canaan is Baal. Baal is tied with Asherah. Asherah is her, uh, his mistress. Supposedly in the myth of Asherah, El, and Baal, El is the more older god, but he was killed by Baal, his son, and Baal married his mom. Kind of weird for a myth for the gods in Canaan. But this is how they understood the mythology in the promised land. Rahab understood this. Baal was the, Baal means ruler, by the way. He means lord or ruler. So that means Baal and Asherah in tandem were the rulers and managers of the promised land of Canaan. And if Yahweh is more powerful because he's the God of the heavens and the earth, and therefore Baal and Asherah were not really gods after all. Now, funny thing about these gods is that Baal is known for being the god of the harvest. He is known also for being the god of fertility, of thunder and storm. Very interesting. Now, the way to worship Baal and Asherah is through sexual performances and burning of firstborns in the fire. That's how they worship Baal and Asherah. That's why if you read the Bible all throughout the Old Testament, you'll find that many times God will say it is abhorrent. It, is, it should not be done by any Israelite to worship Baal or Asherah because God will never ask you to sacrifice your firstborn in the fire. 
In fact, in Leviticus, you have to redeem your firstborn son if you give him to God. But that is how Rahab understood the gods in, in Canaan. She understood the difference. And she was convinced that Yahweh and not Baal was God over the heavens and the earth, including Jericho. Now, she did not mention the plagues in Egypt, the ten plagues. She only mentioned that God split the Red Sea into two so that the people crossed the Red Sea. But she also mentioned two Amorite kings that were defeated by the Israelites. Kings Sihon and King Og. Why, why is this so special? Why did she have to mention this? See, in Deuteronomy chapter 3, King Og and Sihon, King Og's bed measures 13 feet by 6 feet wide. 13 feet by 6 feet wide. That means this king is warrior and a giant. Compared to me, <laughs> he's very tall. Even compared to Pastor Joseph, he's tall. I mean, this guy is really huge to begin with. And if if Sihon and Og were defeated, that means the God of Israel is more powerful than the gods of Sihon and Og. That's what Rahab understood. Because, again, Yahweh was the God of the heavens and the earth. And this was to Rahab very clear. In fact, he sa she said this, verse 11. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, Lord is capital L-O-R-D, Lord that means Yahweh, He's God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now it's not only Rahab who is telling this, but she's saying all of us here in Jericho knows that Yahweh is the God of the heavens and earth. And Baal and Asher were no gods after all. That means Yahweh was, was not just one of the gods. That means Yahweh is the God of heaven and earth. A Jewish prayer will always start with Baruch Ata Adulai Elheinu Melech Haolam. That means, Blessed be the Lord God, King of the Universe. Every Jew will pray and acknowledge that Yahweh is King of the Universe. That means Yahweh is not just King over Egypt or King over the wilderness or King over Canaan. God, Yahweh, is King over the whole world. See, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Not heaven, but with S, heavens. Be that means the whole universe, the whole known, known universe, heavens and the earth. That means if Baal was known to be the god of harvest, of fertility, of thunder, and whatever, God is more. God is the one who, who we pray to for harvest. God is the one who we pray for healing. God is the one who we pray for provision. Even when we die, God takes care of us. That's who Yahweh is. Yahweh is all-encompassing God. See, the problem with the territorial gods in Canaan is that uh, local gods are just gods of a certain place, of a certain profession. There is a god in the mountain. There is a god of the sea, Yam. There's a god for the fishermen. There's a god for shoemakers. There's a god for, you know, local things. But when Yahweh is presented as God, he's presented as God over all. King of the universe. That's who he is. If God is heaven, is God in heaven and on earth, then it must be said that God also is the ruler of both the heavens and the earth. If Yahweh is the creator of the, the heavens and the earth, then he has every right to grant to anyone, any land, whomever he wants. Are you following me? 
That means if Yahweh gave the right to the Israelites to go and take over the place of Canaan, that's because he is the God of heavens and earth. He has every right to give and grant that privilege. The last portion of Joshua chapter 2 is a conversation between the spies and Rahab. This is what the spies said to Rahab. Verse 18. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house in the streets, his blood shall be on his head, and we shall be guiltless. But if any hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. What the, the spies are saying is that their lives for ours. You will be protected as long as you stay inside the house and you tie the scarlet cord in the window. That's going to be the sign when the people invade the land. That's going to be the sign that this house will be protected. And everyone in the house, that's what they're saying. See, this conversation tells me two things. Number one, although God brings judgment to Jericho, salvation is also being offered. Salvation is also offered. Rahab was offered redemption and salvation by the spies. See, Rahab is not even educated. She does not have the ability for complex ideas, but she understood together with all the people in Jericho understood who Yahweh is. And the salvation was in the context of surrender. That means if the people decide to surrender, they will not be invaded. They will not be killed. Yahweh does not want them to be killed as long as they surrender. The modern word for that is repentance. See, judgment does not fall on people if they repent. But judgment falls on people if they do not repent. And the people of Jericho did not repent. So judgment came on them. That means repentance and surrender was an option. Are you listening? Surrender was an option. Number two that I realized from here, that God is no respecter of persons. What do I mean by that? See, the spies offered asylum to Rahab and her household. And what's fascinating to me is the fact that there were no moral preconditions of this offer. That means if you're inside the house of Rahab and when the Israelites come and invade the land, if you're inside the house, regardless of your moral status, you are safe, you are spared. That means God is not saying you have to be moral first before you're accepted to God. Or you must change your behavior first for in order for you to be worthy. Or you must do this and you must do that before God accepts you. See, the only thing that the spies told Rahab was to tie the scarlet cord in her window and stay inside the house. Nothing more. It's, what, it's not even a precondition to salvation and redemption. You don't have to do anything to be saved. Just stay inside the house. Tie that scarlet cord. See, look, Rahab was a prostitute. Her moral life and her professional life was not, <coughs> excuse me, was not even raised as an issue here. That means her past did not disqualify him from receiving grace. In fact, that means her past, in fact, qualifies her to receive grace and redemption. Because grace and redemption, grace and redemption is for sinners like us. And that's the whole point of it. Redemption <coughs> is for people who acknowledge that they need a Savior. Don't you find it interesting that God offers salvation 
regardless of our economic standing, regardless of our educational attainments or our moral and cultural status, because none of them were issues and preconditions in order to receive salvation. Why? Because God is no respecter of persons. That means I, I don't care. It doesn't matter. Your, your past does not matter as long as you're inside the house. God does, does, not, does not look at gender, does not look at color, does not look at your past. As long as you're inside the house, the spies will come and pass over the house because it's tied with the scarlet cord in the window. What's interesting here is that the Jews have this sort of a caste system for holiness. On top of the, I, their idea of holiness uh, is the Pharisees and the scribes. The, the Pharisees, you already know, just like Paul, uh, blameless, very strict in following the law. The scribes are those who copy the, the Bible and teach the people the words of God, scribes. So the Pharisee and the scribe are categories of people on the top tier who people believe to be the most righteous. Why are they most righteous? Number one, they fast twice a week. They meticulously tight on everything without exception. They pray every day. They read the scriptures on a regular basis. And they try their best as much as possible to obey that all that's written in the Bible. That's how strict they were. You remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and asked, how do I enter the kingdom of God? And what did he say? All my life I've been following the law. He's not even a Pharisee. But all his life he's been following the law. And Jesus said, sell all your possessions and come follow me. He was disappointed. He cannot do it. But the Pharisees are blameless according to Apostle Paul. They have been strictly following the 635 laws of the Old Testament on the top tier. Now, beneath them are the ordinary Jews. The people who are not as religious as them, but they obey the law as well. They go to the temple. And at least once a year, they go to the temple and celebrate probably Yom Kippur, the Shabbat, and Passover. They try to follow the law whenever they can. They're the equivalent of us, ordinary people like us. So the Pharisees, the ordinary Jews, at the very bottom of righteousness is, uh, is what we call the outcasts. The outcasts, the criminals, the lepers, the physically disfigured and disabled, the Gentiles, the prostitutes, and the tax collectors. At the very bottom are the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Now, in the Old Testament understanding of righteousness and holiness, the lepers, because you have skin disease and it's incurable, that means you are unclean. So for them, unclean ceremonially is on the, at the very bottom. But morally, the prostitutes and the tax collectors are also in that same category, like the criminals. Why the prostitutes? We already know that. But why the tax collectors? Because the tax collectors are seen as someone who is a traitor, why? Because he collect taxes not for God but for the Roman government at this point in time. So they're considered traitors. They're scum. Uh, they're, in, in <laughs> they're more of um, not, um, how do you say that? They're more like not uh, in submission to the will of God. In fact, they're in submission to the will of Caesar and they're collecting taxes for Caesar to enslave the people of Israel. So they are seen as traitors. Now, <coughs> it's very interesting because in a Jewish prayer book, there's a prayer that goes like this. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile 
a slave and a woman. Isn't that interesting? Jews discriminate on being a Gentile, a slave, and a woman. Now, Jesus told a story that goes the same like this in Luke chapter 18. I'm going to read this to you because this is very interesting if you compare it later. Luke 18, 10 to 14, Jesus said, Two men went up to the temple to pray. And when I say in the temple, they did not go inside the Holy of Holies. They were at the temple courts. So two men went to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, you already know, on the top tier, and the other, a tax collector, the lowest tier, the outcast, the unclean, the unredeemable. 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector behind me. He said, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this is what Jesus said in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. Who's justified? Is it the tax collector, the bottom, the very bottom, the outcast, the unredeemable? Or the Pharisee, the one who thinks himself blameless? Jesus said, the one who's justified before the Lord, the one God accepts is not the Pharisee but the tax collector. See, this message is revolutionary to begin with. All along, the Pharisee is thought to be understood as the pinnacle of righteousness. This guy is the most righteous ever. But Jesus is saying, no, it's not true. In this passage, Jesus was reversing this understanding. The tax collector was the outcast, but he was the one justified by God, not the Pharisee. That means the tax collector was the one who received grace and mercy, not the Pharisee. It was the tax collector whom God heard, not the Pharisee. Isn't it interesting that the blameless people, those who think they are blameless, are the ones not accepted by God? So back to our question. If being blameless doesn't get you right with God, then who will? Well, there's an obvious answer to this. The tax collector. Now enter Zacchaeus. You have heard this name before. You have heard from Sunday school or from other preachings. Some of you have probably read from the Bible. Zacchaeus. Now as I read the story of Zacchaeus, if you, it's the first time for you to listen to this. W if I read this story, I want you to remember the story of Rahab. Because prostitute and tax collector is in the same category. Now, I want you to remember five things about Rahab. Number one, she's a prostitute. Number two, she lives in Jericho. Number three, her house is built up in the wall of Jericho. Number three, she must tie a scarlet cord in her window. And number five, she must stay inside the house to be saved. Is that good? Those five information, you don't have to read it to memorize. But tuck it in inside, somewhere there. And I, as I read the story of Zacchaeus, you will find that the story of Rahab mirrors the story of Zacchaeus. <coughs> Luke chapter 19, verse 1 said, He, it's Jesus, entered Jericho, Zacchaeus and Rahab were from Jericho, and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He's not just a chief, uh, tax collector, he's the chief. I mean, he is, guys high above the food chain. And he's rich. He got rich from, you know, getting money, getting the taxes. So, he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, 
because he was s small in stature, probably like me. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree. Excuse me. Uh, he climbed up into the sycamore tree to see him, for he is about to pass away. So Zacchaeus was up in the tree. Rahab also lives at the wall of Jericho. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Uh, very interesting. Jesus is going to the house of Zacchaeus. The spies is going to pass over the house of Rahab because there was a scarlet cord tied to her window. Verse 8. Um, sorry. So he hurried down and came down and received him joyfully, the guest of him uh, joyfully. Verse 7. And when they saw it, who's they? The they are the Pharisees. The, the Pharisees are the ones who believe themselves to be blameless. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. If you heard the word grumbled, you're always connected with the thought that happened in the wilderness when the people always complain and grumble. The Pharisees grumbled. Oh, he has gone to be with the guest of a man who is a sinner. They were complaining because Jesus, who believed himself and teach himself to be the, the teacher, the rabbi, the righteous, is going to associate himself with a tax collector, a corrupt person, a traitor. That cannot be. He, Jesus, is becoming a guest of a sinner. Verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, Leviticus would tell us that if you want to repent, you have to give it back 100 times. If you defrauded anything or anyone, you have to give it 100 times. Zacchaeus is giving fourfold, 400 times. And that's more of a repentance here, what's happening here. And Jesus said to him, <coughs> because of that, salvation has come to this house since he is also the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Salvation has come to this man today. This is very interesting. See, in the hierarchy of righteousness, Zacchaeus was at the very bottom. Rahab, too, was at the very bottom. But the invitation did not come with preconditions, both to Rahab and to Zacchaeus. There was no precondition. Zacchaeus was not asked, Zacchaeus, you have to repent first before I go to your house. Nothing of that sort. Or you have to give up your, your belongings, your riches, whatever that's stuck in the bank before I go to your house. Nothing like that. Be Zacchaeus, you have to become like, like my disciple first before I go into your house. Nothing like that. There's no precondition here. Just like in Rahab. See, salvation is offered to everyone and it comes without precondition. As I read the story of Rahab and the story of Zacchaeus, I cannot help but see a parallel connection here. Both have unquestionable professions. Both were seen as an outcast, unclean, unredeemable. Rahab lives with her house up in the wall, Zacchaeus up in the tree. On the way down, the spies instructed Rahab to tie the scarlet cord at her window. Zacchaeus, too, was invited by Jesus to come down from the tree. And as he declares repentance, he gave away fourfold of his riches. Both were offered salvation and without preconditions. Now picture this. During the Passover, when God said, I will kill all the firstborns of Egypt, but if you want to be spared, you Israelites must kill a Passover lamb and paint your doorposts with blood and your windowsill. That's what they did. So when the angel of death 
passed over, the only place that he passes over are those houses with painted blood in the doorposts and windowsills. Red, blood. Uh, when it's bright red, it's uh, scarlet. When it's dark red, it's crimson. Nevertheless, it has blood. Rahab was instructed to tie up that scarlet cord, interesting, on her window, so that when the Israelites invade the land, they will pass over the house. Same idea. It's going to be on the last, uh, the third year of the ministry of Jesus that this Messiah will be seen with his blood-soaked body hanging on the cross. And this time, Zacchaeus will not be looking down from the tree. Zacchaeus will be looking up to the tree where Jesus is hanged. Beloved, our salvation was offered to us not because we were more righteous or more educated or more rich or more civilized. Salvation was offered to us just like to everyone else. It was offered without any preconditions and it will remain without preconditions. That means you and I here are not blameless. In fact, you and I here are those people who, who acknowledge that they are a sinner. The very fact that you are here, you have acknowledged that. And regardless whether you sin a little or you sin a lot, you're a sinner, period. It's the same. You sin a little or you sin a lot, it doesn't matter. You're a sinner, period. See, just like the COVID virus, it's either positive or negative. So either you say, I'm a sinner or I'm not a sinner. And if you believe that you're a sinner, because there's nothing coming in between, if you believe that you're a sinner, then you have this grace offered to you. And it comes without preconditions. So don't go into thinking that you are better than anyone because you are more prayerful, more devoted, more mature. See, the grace of God is not gender-specific. It has no color. It's not short-sighted. It does not discriminate anyone inside the house, regardless of who you are, regardless of your past. You are saved. You are offered salvation. It doesn't matter if you had a terrible, terrible past. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, matter if, if you, you broke, broke all, all the, the Ten, ten commandments. commandments. It doesn't matter if you have been disowned or betrayed. Anyone inside the house of Rahab gets saved, period. Matthew took great care to trace the lineage of Jesus. Jesus, the righteous Messiah, the Son of God, all the way in chapter 1 to this unclean, Gentile, prostitute Rahab. Did you know? that Rahab was the great-grandmother of David and Jesus was traced from King David. That means Jesus' blood is traced all the way to Rahab. Isn't that interesting? See, Jesus, God does not discriminate. And I'm telling you today, if you're a sinner and you look up to the blood-soaked body of Jesus hanging on the cross, wherever you're standing right now, if you repent, you're accepted without preconditions. My encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, is this. Look up to Jesus. Look up to the cross. Look up to that scarlet red blood dripping. Whenever you feel guilty because you did not measure up, whenever you feel guilty because you feel that sin and, and that guilt haunting you, look up to that red blood, scarlet blood dripping on the cross because that's the guarantee. That's your sign that we are forgiven. That's your sign and guarantee that we are saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for this righteous life 
that Jesus lived. Thank you for the gift of love given to us through the cross. And thank you for this guarantee that it's not up to us. That being right with you does not, does not come with preconditions. That you accept us, whoever we are, wherever we are, whatever the past we had. That your love is without conditions. Father, I pray today that you will remind us of this truth. When we feel guilty, when we feel ashamed because of our past, Father, I pray that you will remind us of this. When we feel guilty and ashamed because of our present, Father, I pray that you will also remind us of this. If we are worried that we might commit something in the future, Father, I pray that you will also remind us of this. Salvation comes without precondition. Your love comes to us without preconditions. Father, I pray that you will bless our hearts and speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.